1: As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend.
0: Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe, and if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar podcast. This is another episode in our Tour de France series. And today we're going to talk about the future of Tour de France tech. Now the big tech stories of this year's Tour de France have been all about things such as wireless shifting, hydraulic disc brakes and tubeless tires. But what does the future hold? Well, thanks to the never ending churn of competition and a good bit of old fashioned capitalism, the progress will never ever stop. Which is good, as it will keep uh, <laughs> it will keep my editor George Scott in a job, who joins me today. Thank you for joining me.
0: Good to join you, Simon, and and yeah, looking forward to gazing into the crystal ball and uh, having a think about what we're going to be talking about in ten years' time.
1: Absolutely. So, what does the future hold? Well, obviously, we don't know exactly what the future holds, but as Uh, privileged insiders of the cycling industry we do get a little peek behind the curtain here and there and today we're going to discuss what we think could be some of the big tech trends that could be just around the corner for the Tour de France and cycling in general. So let's start with uh, new materials. Now when carbon fibre came along in the kind of late 80s uh, or early 90s it very quickly kind of revolutionized how bicycles were made and in a few short years, bikes went from kind of looking the way all, they had always looked with double triangle frames and mostly kind of thin round tubes to uh, monocoque aerofoil designs that were so wild, uh, the UCI decided to step in and, and turn back the clock. And, you know, whilst carbon fibre is now the kind of technology du jour for p- performance racing bicycles, it won't always be that way, perhaps. Perhaps.
0: Perhaps not, and I think part of the reason why we haven't necessarily developed beyond carbon fibre is uh, possibly the, the the UCI weight limit in terms of the kind of pursuit of ever lighter materials, and we'll, we'll come on to that specific point later. Um, but one of the the materials that has been talked about a bit over the the last few years is is graphene, which has kind of been added to various parts uh not just in the cycling industry but you know across almost any industry over the past few years with talk of it being you know lighter or particularly stronger than than carbon fiber but that hasn't really taken off you know it, it, you know it seems to be more of a marketing opportunity than a performance opportunity at the moment
1: yeah, and and I, it was a big thing around uh, 2017, and I remember the UK brand uh, Dassey Bikes made a carbon bike which had uh, resin infused by graphene, and everyone got pretty excited about that at the time. I believe they said that they thought it would be possible to make a 500-gram uh, aero road bike frame, obviously a rim brake frame uh, at the time. That would have been obviously very impressive, but it didn't materialise, and I think that company kind of went went under unfortunately but um yeah graphene hasn't kind of made the splash that i think everyone was hoping it could uh, in terms of acclaims, it, it's something like you know 200 times stronger than steel for the same kind of uh, thickness but i think you yeah, obviously bicycles aren't you know whilst brands like to kind of compare themselves to formula 1 uh, technology obviously you know cycling brands operate on a cost level that means you know, they are businesses that have to sell to consumers it's not just a kind of exhibitionist type thing so i think obviously you know cost is always going to play a, a major role in that kind of thing but um on the other hand one thing that has made uh, a bigger impact and i think is going to have an increasingly large impact on the sport of cycling is 3d printing
0: and mm, we saw that um just being out in copenhagen Uh, at the start of the tour a couple of weeks ago and you know it seems to be limited to time trial parts at the moment for the most part but you know it's it's it's, 3d printing has really developed in the last few years as an opportunity for riders to fine-tune fit or um, for their teams to create bespoke parts for uh, an aerodynamic setup that um, needs to be unique to them so um I mean, Filippo Ganna's been using 3D-printed handlebars for a while now, isn't he? And that, that design's now ported over to the Dogma F, the Belide F, the new time trial bike.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and Pinarello have, uh, or most Talon, I suppose, they're most Talon uh, integrated handlebars. They, they, that technology's been around for a while. I think Froome had those in maybe 2014. Uh, obviously, Wiggins used a set for his hour record and... Um, Yeah, we saw Luke Durbridge with a set of 3D-printed time trial extensions on his giant Trinity Advanced. Um, Those were obviously very nice, very pretty. Uh, I think, you know, are we going to see a move to sort of 3D-printed titanium bicycles? I'm not so sure. I think it would be, you know, it would be difficult to make one that is kind of competitive with a carbon fiber bicycle in terms of, you know, not not just performance, but as, as we've kind of already discussed slightly in terms of cost, I think until the kind of cost of 3D printing tooling comes down, that's, that's still going to be a, a major hurdle. But I think one of the advantages of 3D printing, and, and in, it, in a way this could kind of influence the world of cycling without necessarily, you know, we, we might not necessarily end up with 3D printed parts or bicycle frames, but uh, manufacturers being able to 3D print uh, prototypes and therefore, you know, being able to kind of more quickly and more easily iterate their designs, you know, potentially opens up a lot more scope uh, in the development
0: process. I mean, what would you like to see in terms of uh, 3D printing? What parts do you think have the potential to um, go through that iteration process and 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 perhaps enable brands and riders to use something that's a little bit wacky compared to uh, the kind of fairly standard designs that we have today?
1: I think you know it's it's kind of obviously it's kind of tricky to say in a sense because I'm not a bicycle designer and I don't know what kind of things have been tried and what <laughs> what is a good idea and what what is like you know just not a, a not not a good idea but I I think in terms of we're starting to see things such as obviously like the Ribble Ultra SLR uh, has a, a a kind of very funky handlebar on it that it's made out of carbon fiber and I I don't know if they used 3D printing in the kind of development of that bar but The idea of the handlebar is that rather than a normal aerofoil shape, it has a kind of bulge, bulging aerofoil shape along the tops to kind of uh, interact with the airflow, break the airflow over the rider's body and kind of reduce aerodynamic drag. Now, the Argon 18 track bikes that Team Australia used at the Tokyo Olympics in 2020 had uh, similar kind of uh, aero shrouds on the drops of their 3D printed uh, titanium handlebars. And, and, And I think that... It's, it's, it's those kind of things that those kind of more complex aerodynamic shapes that are kind of difficult to make in composite materials or just sort of simply, you know, not uh, commercially feasible because, you know, making composite moulds uh, for for various small, for things like that is, is you know, can be v- incredibly costly. So I think that's the kind of, that's the area, that's one of the areas where I think it could be really influential. But another of the areas is, is about, perhaps you know making things more personalized you know we, we've seen 3d printing technology kind of you know take off quite quite well in saddles recently and obviously those are quite expensive at the moment but if there's going to be a thing where you know we're, you know maybe in five or ten years we're all sitting on a completely custom saddle you know that that could really be a, a huge performance difference
0: i mean uh is it the, the Specialized Mirror? Is that That's one of the 3D printed saddles that's on the market at the minute.
1: Yeah, I think Physique makes, makes some as well. And those kind of use a open cell, uh, kind of 3D printed open cell design, uh, which looks kind of weird and looks difficult to clean. But our very own Jack Luke is especially fond of his. And he, he sort of said, I think he told me it was annoyingly good because it's <laughs> a very expensive saddle. Uh, and he kind of felt
0: annoyed that it was that good. Well, yeah, I mean, I haven't used it, but yeah, haven't spoken to Jack about it. I just think that you know, having that kind of open structure just means that it's, you know, it has the ability to remain very supportive, but also more cushioned than a you know a, a kind of typical racing saddle. And you know, I think if a brand like Specialized and, and Physique, you know, big brands are able to utilize that technology on their Halo products at the moment, it's a it's a fair assumption that at some point that should hopefully trickle down to more affordable products so yeah i think stems is uh, not stem saddles is a is definitely a, a potential application of 3d printing that we could see sooner rather than later uh, in terms of kind of mass market availability um but you know in terms of the actual uh, the, the frames that we see at the tour de france and the possibility of moving away from carbon fiber do you think that there's any any new materials on the horizon that could change the preference for carbon fiber or or you know is that part of the the, the kind of uh, the bike that's here to stay i i think
1: it, i think it's really tricky and and one of those things is is that carbon fiber is 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 really great and um obviously it took a it took quite a big shift for bicycles to move away from you know metal and steel and aluminium uh, and of course you know whilst there are a number of big cycling brands that they are you know they're all heavily invested in carbon fiber technology so some so for something to come along and uh, move the needle you know if if a brand such as uh, you know specialized or giant or you know any of these you know the biggest brands trek for example for them to kind of completely down tools on, on carbon fiber manufacturing and say right well we're not going to make carbon fiber bikes anymore we're actually just going to 3d print everything you know that would be an enormous undertaking, so I d- so I don't think we're going to see um, carbon fiber bicycles disappear anytime soon, simply uh, you know down to cost. But you know the things that happen at the top of the sport, you know such as the Olympics, you know we we do tend to see those things, as you say, start to trickle down, and and you know bikes such as the Hope HBT, for example, used, you know a lot of three uh, D printed. Uh, parts and components to kind of achieve things that weren't possible with composites um, obviously that you know that took place at not in considerable expense so it's probably not practical for kind of a consumer bike but that's we're only talking about that now And and as 3D printing becomes you know more widespread throughout society those costs will you know inevitably come down through economies of scale and things like that so I think it's hard. It's hard to see carbon fiber being kind of replaced in the immediate future, simply, you know, for kind of financial reasons. But, you know, yeah, who who knows? I, I, I it would be interesting if if kind of graphene made made a big comeback. But there could be just could be another wonder material that you know, some scientist is working away on that we haven't heard about yet. So who knows?
0: Maybe yeah. And, and you kind of mentioned about you know sometimes getting a sneak behind the curtain and you know I think we you know we certainly haven't heard anything that would suggest that uh, carbon fiber has a, a limited shelf span because you know as you say it's brands are very heavily invested in it but also as you also said it's, it's it is a brilliant material from which to make a bike but yeah so perhaps in terms of future tour tech, carbon is here to stay but um, we would expect to see more 3d printing and customization of small parts and saddles and components um, you know, beyond time trial bikes and perhaps uh, a broader application across the industry as well.
1: Absolutely. Now, the next one I think might be a slightly—if this is ever introduced—I think this is going to be incredibly controversial. But um, it's something that we see on on road cars. I certainly see it in in Formula One. And if the kind of top of the sport at least is looking for small gains, then this could be this could be one. Now, I'm I'm going to suggest that we. And this, this potentially is not not that far away. I, I'm going to suggest that we might at some point see wireless or electronically controlled brakes. Now, is that something that you would like, George?
0: This uh, this is a this is a <laughs> difficult one because I think most people, when you think about the the possibility of of riding a bike with wireless or electronically controlled brakes, psychologically that feels like a a big step from where we're at at the moment. Whether you're using you know, cabled brakes or, you know, hydraulic brakes. Um but then, you know, talking off air, you know, there there is no reason really why this shouldn't be a thing. As you say, it already exists on cars and in aeroplanes and we're all happy to jump on a on a on a plane and, you know, put our um put our fates in the hands of the, the, the pilots, but also more specifically the electronic systems that they're piloting. Um so yeah, I think as as you say, like this will be you yeah, know this will freak people out uh, <laughs> if, if this beca- if this if this is launched but perhaps unfairly so um unfortunately systems do fail but there is no reason why an electronic system would fail more than any other um yeah the opposite probably uh, you know in terms of applications elsewhere so yeah on the one hand i see this one as quite difficult to um seeing it come to market um but i think that you know it's just almost the kind of step changes to you know understanding where this technology already exists and actually you know it could it could be a good thing so i mean what do you think would be some of the benefits of having you know wireless or electronically controlled brakes um you know beyond uh just having more you know less wires on your on your bike
1: I mean, I think it, it, it's, yeah, obviously getting rid of the kind of, you know, the the cables or hydraulic hoses in itself isn't a kind of major advantage. You know, it's not going to, you know, if, you're, if your cables are already hidden inside the frame, then obviously you don't get an error benefit from getting rid of a cable that wasn't in the wind anyway. But it's kind of what it would allow frame manufacturers to, to do. And I think, you know, we, we've seen a lot of manufacturers, for example, as wireless electronic group sets have come along, they've quickly abandoned uh, internal cable routing for for gear cables you know making holes in small holes in carbon fiber frames it inevitably risks introducing stress points you have to reinforce those areas you know if you're going to kind of dr- drill a hole into a carbon frame you know that's that's a kind of as our you know wonderful uh, tech writer oscar huckle will tell you is an incredibly bad idea <laughs> so it, it, you know getting rid of any extra cables kind of helps you to make, you know, structurally better, better bikes in the sense that you know you, there's less requirements for uh, complicated cable routing. Now, you know, complicated cable routing is is a is a kind of major topic du jour as we kind of know the creative ways that brands have had to kind of bend over backwards in order to route hydraulic hoses and you know previously gear wires and cables through the kind of handlebar, through the stem, down into the head tube, you know, often having to have holes in forks, uh, special headsets designed to, and steerer tubes and split steerer tubes and, you know, D-shaped steerer tubes, that, all, all of these sorts of complicated things uh, simply to, you know, root hoses internally through the frame. Now, if you could get rid of those, and you know, if we say, say you had a in a similar way that your maybe hydraulic dropper post is operated by wirelessly, um, you had a you know hydraulic brake operated wirelessly, you could have a much simpler head tube arrangement, potentially a much safer head tube arrangement as well, because you know we have seen in recent years a, a number of kind of steerer tube failures uh, and handlebar failures as a result of kind of you know these complicated uh cable routing systems you know perhaps not quite working as intended um we could see narrower head tubes as well because you know the head tube doesn't you know ed- inevitably if you want to route stuff through it you need to have you need to make room by either taking material off the steerer tube um or you know physically increasing the size of the head tube so i think you know that could be a kind of there could be an aerodynamic advantage there but i think it's just kind of one of those things where the only thing stopping it is um is us, you know, really it's consumers, whether whether we are kind of ready for that technological leap. Um I think as you as you said, it fills me it fills me with dread thinking about it. But at the same time, you know, cable operated rim brake systems or or hydraulically operated disc brake systems, you know, are not foolproof. <laughs> mm. uh, so, you know, would they be any less safe than those systems? you know arguably not and, and i think like you said yeah, you know, if we look at um electronic shifting for example i think you know arguably you know we, we could say that mechanical mechanical gearing systems might be easier to repair but i would say that most people would agree that electronic uh, gearing systems require less maintenance and fail less often
0: and is, is this something that you could see on the horizon in the next few years or do you think we're there's a there's a there's a bit to go down the track before this is a, an application that's suitable for bikes.
1: I mean, I think, you know, technologically, I think the technology to make this happen exists. So <laughs> if there was a kind of enterprising brand who was brave enough to stick, you know, put their neck on the line and make it happen... I, I don't think there's any reason why this couldn't exist. Like I said, we have, you know, wirelessly controlled, hydraulically actuated dropper posts. So, yeah, I, I think the technology exists and it's just a case of, uh, I think this is probably a
0: case of when rather than, than if. I think the the key point for now is the uh, the point you made around kind of an enterprising brand. You know, I think it, I would struggle to see the big, players making this move at the moment because you know they want to you know protect their their market share and i'm not sure it's a technology that would you know necessarily kind of um enamor consumers from the offer you know i could almost see it being launched as a um you know a a prototype concept or on a concept bike um or from a, a smaller or kind of challenger brand that's looking to make its mark even if it's not necessarily going to win market share but that might start to sow the seeds um for kind of future development elsewhere so yeah, I think from my point of view, I I, I agree. The technology exists elsewhere. Um, I think the you know the application on on bikes is is slightly different to you know cars or even bigger um, vehicles and modes of transport in terms of um, you know how we use our brakes on bikes, and I think electronic braking on cars is often to su- support um, ABS systems and, and so on. However, fundamentally... Well, we might
1: see ABS systems come as well. Um, well didn't, didn't we see some for e-bikes recently, even this week? Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house, Yeah, they, well, this week I think one of the talking points at, at the the Eurobike trade show where we've got a few of our staff at this week is is ABS systems. So, um, yeah, as you say, the technology is is there. Um, you know, we put uh, you know a lot of trust into electronic systems already. So, you know, there, there is no reason why this shouldn't develop as a technology. But I think for me, it's you know it's a, it's a few years off.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And and I think, like you say, I I think this perhaps is unlikely to come from. Um, Shimano, Shimano or SRAM or Campagnolo initially, but I can I could you know I could see a, a a frame manufacturer maybe a you know a small frame manufacturer of you know doing doing this sort of thing. Um, yeah, be, you know whether we'll see it in the Tour de France, I, I I don't know. But like we say, I think the technology already exists, and you know who doesn't want a kind of you know a, a faster bike.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's a that's a good point to finish on, and, and thank you for volunteering to be, be <laughs> the first tester to to, to, to to test the fly-by-wire braking system. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I've drop
1: myself in it there, I suppose. Um, so I think beyond that, and actually, this kind of you know, even if this system was available, you know, whether it would be legal in racing is perhaps another question, and and I wonder if we will see a a major shakeup of the uh, UCI regulations in the next few years um, seems unlikely because they are quite conservative but you know we have seen major regulation shake-ups before haven't we
0: we have and uh, I think even just to kind of talk about a recent story that we covered which is the the Cadex, uh, tri-bike. um tri-bike you know, we focus on cycling specifically on bike radar and and not triathlon but we do occasionally kind of divert into the world of tri to kind of get a, an insight as to what bikes could look like if we didn't have the stringent UCI regulations that we do um but yeah as, as, as you say you know the UCI is conservative the Lugano charter as it's known has existed since um well 1996 I think it was first proposed and approved in the year 2000 and that was to prevent bikes like the lotus bike of the 90s uh, and the pinarello espada which looked actually very similar to what we've seen from cadex recently um you know essentially stopping the development of uh you know those kind of um, very aerodynamically sculpted bikes so yeah i don't think we could necessarily see a big shake-up of the UCI regulations soon but i think it is always fun to speculate what we would like to see if those regulations were shaken up. So, I mean, let's start with tube profiles. I mean, what would you like to see at the Tour de France if we you know, we could whisper in the ear of the UCI and perhaps uh, get a rewrite on some of these rules?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, personally I would really like to to see um the kind of getting getting rid of the uh double triangle rule. I know that the kind of, you know, from an engineering point of view, the kind of double triangle bicycle is a very elegant design. It's very structurally efficient um, and, it, you know, it, it's a good, well-proven design, but I think we're past the point at which it, it's it's kind of a necessary restriction and, you know, just kind of commercially, you know, cycling is not a rich sport and it needs to do more to attract attention and you know things like the Lotus bike and the Pinarello Espada that you know uh, Miguel Indurain rode for his hour record and for a few time trials on the road uh, it, it, those those bikes really capture people's attention in the same way that the the Hope uh, the Hope HPT did in the previous Olympic cycle obviously the Hope HPT is designed within the current UCI regulations but it could have been even more um Radical and and wild had the kind of uh, double triangle frame design rule not been in place. I I would really like to see them get rid of that. I I think it's very difficult for manufacturers to, I imagine, to justify manufacturing UCI legal time trial bikes. They've become a bit of a a dead end. You know, no one really takes part. Amateurs don't need to buy UCI legal time trial bikes, mostly. Uh, And obviously, the triathlon world is kind of off doing its own thing, and it's a much more kind of popular area. And a lot of big brands are focusing their kind of uh, aero research and development on triathlon bikes and then kind of making a UCI legal bike as a a sort of almost an afterthought uh, where and and when they can. And, you know, we're seeing when we see new UCI legal time trial bikes these days, such as the kind of um, specialized Shiv TT or the Canyon Speedmax, or, you know, they, they all kind of look the same and i i think cycling you know I, the uci wants to make it about kind of athlete versus athlete but i think they need to acknowledge that you know bike fans are into cycling because you know they like the sport of cycling but they also like bikes
0: i mean you're you're someone who you know formula 1 is another of your kind of uh, side side passions you know that i suppose you could argue in f1 that you also have homogenous design but is there more scope for kind of individuality there than there is in cycling um it, it's kind of tricky
1: i think obviously you know all of the teams look for small gaps or kind of interpretations of the regulations to make their cars uh, as fa- as fast as possible and obviously this season we've seen you know mercedes go in a kind of very different way to uh uh the other leading teams red bull and ferrari so there obviously is room within the rules to then for them to um you know go down different routes obviously the difference with the way that formula one works is that they obviously publish their kind of rule book and and they kind of every every so often they come up with a kind of concept car that the new regulations are based around and then people have to build their kind of car like that and and obviously you know the fia kind of comes up with that concept car in order to achieve certain things within racing uh, now like the kind of most recent shake-up we've moved away from cars that produce a lot of uh dirty air you know, turbulent air behind them they use you know cars formula one cars used to basically flick the air up over, the, over them and then create a lot of turbulent air behind them so that following cars couldn't uh, achieve very good performance and then obviously that Led to poor racing because obviously if you can't follow a car, you can't overtake them. So they've tried to reduce that this year by kind of changing the aerodynamic philosophy of the cars. But yeah, obviously, every Formula One team is out there trying to get that performance back. And, and, and I, I, I don't, I'm not sure. You know, a bike is not as complicated as a Formula One car, so I don't think we need to have Formula One style regulation. Um, but, you know, the kind of UCI's technical regulations are a kind of real mishmash of rules and things just kind of taped on and added here and there. You know, like there there are rules in the UCI, UCI's official regulations manual, such as, you know, the kind of the, the clearance between the <laughs> the frame and your rear wheel, must you must be able to put a credit card through it. Like that's the rule, a credit card. <laughs> it's not a defined space or, you know, there must be... You know, two millimeters of clearance all around the tire. It, you, the, the, the guy, the commissaire at the start of the race, can have gets to his, to, American gets his American Express out. Get his American Express out, and he has to be able to shove it through. So, I I just think you know the sport could be kind of professionalized and could kind of you know Formula One obviously when they make their rules they you know they've made their rules this year in the sense because they want closer racing because it's better for for viewers. So I think the UCI would do would be in a good spot if they came together and then said, you know, what is going to be good for the kind of, for the sport, not just our kind of philosophy of like, well, we want to, you know, keep it mano a mano. Because I think if, you know, part of my <laughs> my problem with keeping cycling you know, mano a mano or whatever, like it, it that's a kind of that's quite boring if we just wanted the strongest person to win all the time we could just put everyone on a turbo find out who had the biggest ftp and then just award them the yellow jersey right but what makes the tour de france so amazing is that it isn't always just the strongest person who wins you know there are tactics we like the bikes we like the tech you know maybe someone chooses lighter weight tires but then they puncture and you know it's all of these things play into it and the bike is a crucial part of that
0: Mm. and you know whilst as you say like a lot of these rules have been kind of amended or kind of tacked on you know fundamentally the Lugano charter has existed now for more than two decades and you know bike technology and the, you know the appetite for cycling and how people view racing has changed a lot in that time so you know we kind of covered the the kind of aerodynamic side of things and potentially what we could see if the rule book was rewritten there but you know another talking point every year at the Tour de France is the the UCI weight limit 6.8 kilograms for racing bikes which is also part of that same Lugano Charter um, from the year 2000. And, you know, the the weight limit has almost become moot in the past couple of years. As we discussed in a recent podcast, we we weighed a lot of bikes uh, out in Copenhagen ahead of the start of the tour. And this was with the caveat that it was ahead of sprint stages with deep section wheels and, um, you know, not necessarily lightweight builds, but, you know, we were mostly looking at, at bikes in the kind of high seven kilograms to low eight kilograms. Uh, you know, kind of ready to ride. Um, whereas a few years ago, you know, particularly on mountain stages with rim brakes, you could get bikes comfortably to the UCI weight limit, and you know, many brands and teams were, you know, having to add ballast on some occasions. So, uh, you know, I think with the the kind of the focus on aerodynamics as it is, um, and the, the the weight limit as it is, um, you know, there isn't necessarily a need for the UCI to to do anything. But I think if that weight limit was dropped it would be an interesting question as to whether we might see the introduction of ultra light climbing bikes specifically for mountain stages where teams could model the benefit of a lightweight bike versus an aero bike and and there would be occasions when the lightweight bike might win out on on certain uh kind of course profiles so i mean what are your thoughts on this one simon could we kind of really see the clock being turned back and the the, the introduction of rim brake bikes that uh you know perhaps we're more used to seeing on the the kind of uk hill climbing scene for aptawears
1: i think you know it it, it really d- it would depend on how far the the kind of uh the limit was moved if they you know if they reduced it from 6.8 to 6.5 kilos i don't think anything would change but if they dropped it to you know 5.8 kilos and took a kilo off it then you know all of a sudden the you know, the 7.8 kilo aero bikes that we weighed would be two kilograms over the UCI weight limit. And and so, you know, that would start to move the needle, I think, you know, because whilst it, it would, you know, there are a few Tour de France bikes that can uh, get close to the UCI weight limit. There aren't very many that can do it, you know, with pedals <laughs> and with a bike computer and with bottle cages and kind of all of those those kind of little bits of extra things that, you know, you inevitably have to add on in order to be able to ride your bike. And I think, like you say, yeah, we used to, you know, seeing team mechanics add uh, ballast to bikes was a, a such a regular thing in, in years, in, in the kind of era before disc brakes and before aero frames. And, uh, and that, I can't remember the last time, i saw that happen but i think you know given you know we watch we're recording this on thursday the 14th of july and um you know yesterday's stage which went over the Galibier, you know we saw most riders on a on their kind of lighter weight setups you know with um the lightweight frames shallower wheels that sort of thing and and so i, I suspect that if the UCI weight limit was dropped significantly, then there would be a clamour from professional riders for lighter bikes, and it would be interesting to see, yeah, whether rim brakes uh, would make a comeback. Like, it, it is possible to build ultra lightweight disc brake bikes. You know, our our quality hill climb coverage of the nationals this year included Rebecca Richardson's uh, Specialized AFOS, which is a dis- disc brake bike, and I believe that was sub six kilos so it is t- you know and that and that's a production road frame you know it's a, a fairly expensive production road frame but that wasn't you know that's not something that's kind of handmade to be as kind of you know exotic and out there as possible so it clearly is it is possible to build lighter bikes and yeah i i do think that would move the needle for technology in the tour de france
0: yeah, and, and and interesting when Specialized launched that bike that they specifically made the point that it was to exist outside of UCI regulation. So, I, yeah, I I agree. I think that the weight limit would need to come down enough that that there would then become or you know a big enough gap would exist between the lightest setup achievable on a disc brake bike and what might be achievable on a an ultralight uh, an ultralight disc brake bike. Uh, I think perhaps very unlikely to see the reintroduction of rim brakes. But as you say, you can get those sub six kilogram. Um, disparate builds. So, you know, knowing the UCI as it is, um can't see that rule book being ripped up anytime soon. But I think we can we can still make the case and in terms of future Tour de France tech, you know, we hope that things will evolve because you know tech should evolve, it should stay current and it should stay interesting for, for us and for fans. So uh come on UCI, you know, play your part <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And and this is a kind of you know that takes us on to another um another thing that is currently uh, wouldn't be allowed in uh, UCI races, but would be allowed in something like triathlon. And that is a new drivetrain concept such as ceramic speeds uh, driven. Now, obviously derailleur based gear systems have been around for you know, a really, really long time now. And you know, modern systems are fantastic. They achieve great efficiency, great shifting, you know they have fantastic range you know like compared to you know riders who used to <laughs> climb hills on kind of 42 23 climbing gears or something you know the kind of modern era of having a a 34 uh tooth uh, chainring at the front with a 36 tooth cassette at the back is 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 substantially easier however i would argue that you know kind of making shifting wireless or kind of adding another sprocket we're not really making monumental changes on what we already have, and you know, have we reached the zenith of derailleur based gear systems, George? And could something different be on the horizon?
0: I think possibly is certainly the answer, and I think there, you know there are systems that exist that you know could seek to disrupt the market. Uh, the classified power shift is, is one of them, uh, a hub-based system. Um, the uh, effectively Enables um, a one-by drivetrain to be um, or to, to work as effectively with the, the range and the kind of steps and gears similar to a two-by drivetrain, and that's that's something that's you know, emerged, you know, coming up to a couple of years ago now on a, on on the Ridley Kanzo a, a gravel bike. But again, you know, with, with people on the ground at Eurobike this week, you know, we're starting to see uh, major wheel brands, fast forward being one of them, spec the classified system. Uh, on their wheels, so that you know there is a bit of momentum from you know what is you know certainly a, a kind of small challenger brand at the moment. Um, you know, kind of harking back to a point that's kind of ran through this podcast. You know, whether the the big the big players are ready to move away from their tried and tested derailleur based systems is you know a different question. But it is great to see you know what else could be out there potentially, and whether it is actually a more effective system than what we. What we have at the moment so i mean we're yet to get hands on with the the classified power shift i think we've requested to get one into test because it'd be fascinating to see what the potential is there but you know on, on paper what do you think the benefits could be to ditch ditching derailleurs and um move into something like the classified system
1: so i think front shifting has always been trickier than rear shifting the the chain has to you know when you're shifting over a cassette the chain only has to move a kind of relatively small amount whereas it, when it's got to move between two big chain rings it's, it's a lot further to go and therefore kind of you know a lot more could potentially go wrong and so yeah and until the introduction of, of kind of electronic shifting and the kind of the force of very powerful motors that we now see in in those um derailleurs Electronic shifting was always the kind of thing that, you know, you used to get reminded by experienced cyclists, like, you know, don't shift under power at the front. You know, the chain will just fly off the, <laughs> the chain rings and then you'll, you know, you'll lose it inside the bottom bracket or whatever. Um, now, that, that kind of issue has been negated to an extent, but it is still the harder thing for the system to do and there is more that can go wrong you know as as we kind of discussed in our tech trends um podcast most you know for the tour de france uh a short while ago more teams were using chain catchers this year because of the kind of incompatibility between newer components and you know older components that that's you know so it kind of anytime the system isn't perfect it can kind of throw up things like that 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 make it potentially not so good um Obviously, front derailleurs also add a little bit of aerodynamic drag as well. They are not especially aerodynamically optimized, but even if they even if they are, it's still having something in there in the wind is is always going to be kind of worse than not having something there in the wind. And so, hiding your um, gears inside of a, a hub, you know, which is kind of out of the wind, is a kind of going to be a much more aerodynamically efficient way to do it. Now, we're only going to be talking, you know, a couple of watts. But um, if that comes, you know, at kind of you know no ex- no kind of cost of performance in another way, then that would be nice to have. I think the tricky part with the PowerShift classified hub for me is the idea that it, because it comes in a hub, it's always tied to that specific wheel set. And I remember that being a bit of an issue for PowerTap hubs, which was a power meter brand who used strain gauges based in the rear hub to tell you your power and it's hard to have one wheel set that does everything so if you wanted you know multiple wheel sets for various things like so for my time trial bike for example I have a disc wheel on the rear you know but I don't obviously use a disc wheel on my road bike (laughs) Uh, so you know if I want power shift you know maybe I want to just get power shift built into my time trial bike and then I could stick with two by on the road but if power shift is going to revolutionize it we're going to have to have it on every single wheel set you know does that become a kind of insurmountable problem whereas you know if when the chain rings are the and the derailleur are on the bike then that that's kind of you know you have your one bike and that's less it's cheaper it's kind of less of an issue I, i i maybe that's a very specific point to people like me who are privileged enough to have multiple wheel sets and things like that. But I wonder if that if that would stop mass adoption.
0: I think, yeah, I, th- I think it's a, it's a fair point. You know, specifically, you know, if we are talking about you know kind of racing and um, potential future you know, Tour de France tech, we, you know, we, we know and we see how much riders like to change wheels from one stage to the next, whether that's to optimize aerodynamics or to um, you know, effectively be less aero or kind of you know have more stability on a particularly windy stage or to switch to tubulars for the mountains because, you know, that's that's certainly something we're seeing at the minute, you know, while some teams will be on tubulars for the most part, um, some of those teams are switching to tubulars for the, the kind of small weight gain. So, uh, yeah, I think any any drivetrain system that limits wheel choice or wheel compatibility will always have that hurdle. Um, so perhaps, you know, the application for something like the PowerShift system is more on... Uh, you know kind of uh, everyday bikes that have a focus more on usability and durability and and ease of use and perhaps less at the kind of performance end of the of the spectrum um i mean what we are certainly more likely to see over the coming years as we've seen over the the the, the decades that have passed uh is just the kind of ever increasing number of sprockets on uh on a cassette and uh, everyone, for the most part, is on on twelve speed at the tour at the moment, kind of barring a few uh, component availability issues. Uh, we know that thirteen speed group sets are likely to be on the horizon. Campagnolo's already offering a thirteen speed um, group set uh, for gravel in Campagnolo Ecar. So more likely to see more sprockets. As you kind of said at the top, it's not it's not a huge change. It's not exactly kind of revolutionary. There will be a limit as to you know what you can fit out the back. But um, it is
1: still nice to have, isn't it? I think that's the. I think that's the thing. Having an extra cog will be nice to have if it doesn't come with any major drawbacks.
0: And uh, yeah, and uh, one of the questions that you know could come up if we had 13 sprockets or 14 sprockets is, you know, does one buy for the road become more uh, applicable um, for racing if you have 13 sprockets, where you know you can have the range um, and have kind of relatively small jumps between the gears you know which isn't really achievable at the moment you know we we kind of saw one by you know briefly um appear in the pro peloton um on the the Freeti strada wasn't it a few years ago with the uh aqua the, the, the aqua blue team and some riders were pretty vocal to say the <laughs> least that the the system just wasn't what they wanted it didn't provide the the kind of the range and the steps between gears and you know I I can I'm not a pro but I can understand I can understand that point but do you think if we had more sprockets at the back, that you might see a wider use of one x Because you know, we see it on some time trial bikes at the moment, because the simplicity is appreciated, and you don't need that gear, that gear range. But when it comes to rolling roads or certainly getting getting into the mountains, it's you know it's two by all the way at the minute.
1: Yeah, if I I do think it will be tricky. I think I I think the problem for for one by for the road is that uh, modern kind of uh, electronic front shifting is really good. And so the kind of gain for moving to one by um, is hard to kind of pin down. You know, yes, there's a small aerodynamic benefit, and for a you know a time trial, you know, that's something that. You know because time trials are you know held on kind of relatively flat courses you can often you know what we saw a lot of at the, at the kind of tour where it there was a pan flat short opening time trial we saw a lot of especially SRAM riders who have you know 12 speed group sets as you say like everyone else like most people do now on their time trial bikes um you know huge front chain rings set up one by with a kind of you know slightly wider ranging cassette out the back but but not you know it's not a gravel cassette they're still running a kind of you know it would have been a, a a 10 to 33 or a 10 to 36 tooth cassette and those cassettes would have been you know one of the, the nice things about the way that SRAM spaces their cassettes is they're very tight uh tight tightly spaced at the at the kind of bottom end so when you when you're in that big gear you you know you have kind of one tooth jumps and then the jumps get kind of progressively bigger as you kind of move up the the cassette and obviously you know when you're climbing i suppose you're probably you know those are more bailout gears you're, you're less concerned about the kind of marginal differences but I, I think when you're not in a time trial and you are doing mountainous stages the kind of the requirements between you know going uphill say up you know up the outdoors for example which is you know kind of around eight to nine percent average but then you know you maybe have to come down a descent on the other side <laughs> you know the kind of the requirements between gearing that you need to go up and then you know to then maintain contact going down are so different that even if the range could be kind of replicated by a one by system the two by system is going to win out on kind of things like a mechanical efficiency so there are tricky hurdles for one by on the road to overcome still however yeah like we move to 13 maybe even 14 speed then you know the kind of it becomes more realistic, and especially for uh, you know flat racing. You, you know, we we saw Lizzie Dignan win the uh, inaugural Paris Roubaix Femmes on a on a one by system, and and I suspect that on you know in spring classics and, and things like that, where y- you know the the hills are can be short and sharp, and and obviously very testing you know, uh, the riders, a lot of them, you know, the speeds of the peloton are going so fast that there, a lot of them are the big ringing, these climbs. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and the more time you can stay in, the in obviously, the big ring, you know, f- even if front shifting is really good, obviously, it does cost you having to shift. You know, you do momentarily back off the power with a derailleur-based system. So there are kind of small advantages that can be applicable to one by systems in certain things. I, I don't think we're going to see them adopted wholesale across uh the tour de france for mountain stages and things like that but certainly yeah for flat stages and the kind of more classic type races absolutely
0: yeah i'd I'd agree i think yeah perhaps we'll see slightly wider adoption in years to come but um not across the board
1: one thing that i would really like to see with drivetrains is kind of more um development in on things like ceramic speeds driven I, i think you know the major as as we've kind of classified power shift that one of the, the kind of major issues with de- derailleurs is um that they're just they're not aerodynamic and you know we saw obviously ceramic speed recently released their ospw aero derailleur pulley cage because it you know in a kind of attempt to clean up some of that airflow but a system uh like ceramic speeds driven which for those who don't know is a kind of drive shaft that, that runs on a drive shaft controlled by a kind of conventional crank that uh, runs across a kind of flat cassette at the rear. Um, now, it, it claimed, the, the concept claims to be kind of 49% more efficient than a Shimano Dura-Ace drivetrain, which sounds incredible. But obviously, a Shimano Dura-Ace drivetrain, you know, is kind of already 98%, 97% efficient, maybe, you know, a little bit less if you don't keep your drivetrain clean. Uh, so, you know, it's 40, 49% of not much. But the kind of major goal, the major kind of benefit is that it's kind of more aerodynamic and obviously it isn't UCI legal. That's the kind of the major problem with it being in the Tour de France. But, you know, the UCI rules are not, they're not set in stone. They could be changed. And I would, I I think, you know, moving to aerodynamically optimized drivetrains or even kind of, you know, drivetrains, which, are held inside of kind of fairings or kind of you know like chain guards for example would would kind of represent progress for the sport because other than adding another cog and you know kind of further refining shifting i'm not sure where uh, derailleur based drivetrains are going to go from here you know shimano says that the the new gear is shifts faster than the old one but like i think universally amongst the people who've ridden it here like it's pretty it's a pretty hard to tell (laughs) you know the shifting is just generally excellent and it was before it's still incredibly good but it's like can we you know can can shifting get any better in that sense and maybe we need to go in another direction to look for the gains
0: well yeah i mean i think the ceramic speed system um and i would recommend everyone listening you know check checks that out we've got a a story on bike radar from when that first broke cover um in twenty nineteen, it is a really interesting look at what the drivetrain of the future could look like. You know, whether we'll get there, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure personally, uh, you know, I think the you know the, the based systems we have at the moment are uh are kind of here to stay for the most part. Um but it shows that, the, you know, even if it is a prototype, there are um there are other options out there and it is good to see brands uh you know developing those and um yeah perhaps given a uh, yes given us some insight as to what we might see in the future
1: so the last thing that i would like to talk about are kind of the democratization of uh tools to kind of track rider health and performance and aerodynamics and things like that and we've seen quite a few new uh, entrants to the market in in these kind of areas recently. We've seen obviously uh, Notio Connect who make an an aero sensor for bikes. Uh, There's a company called Body Rocket who are working on a similar system to measure uh, the aerodynamics of a rider and their bike. Uh, Whoop have made quite a big splash recently with their uh, heart rate variability tracking um, tools and obviously more and more smart watches and things like that are tracking heart rate variability we've also seen super sapiens which is a glucose monitoring tool um obviously data is you know great and you've got to know what to do with it but i think you know could these things be the you know the kind of new power meters
0: well i think yeah in terms of super sapiens specifically the uci has already said no on that <laughs> on that one swift swiftly moved to to ban the use of that in in racing and yeah as as you said it's a it's a glucose monitoring tool but yeah you know most mostly so far in this podcast we've talked about you know what we want to see or what we could see uh, on on the bike and here we're kind of talking about you know perhaps what uh you know the kind of testing tools that might apply specifically to, to the rider or to be able to kind of measure uh, aerodynamics on on the go um yeah, I, I don't know. I I you know, I, th- I think the benefit here, you know, particularly when it comes to health monitoring tools is in, in training, um, uh, you know, whether the devices that are out there at the moment are accurate enough to provide um, you know, relevant insight to to teams. I you know, I'm I'm not sure. But you know, certainly a, a lot is being made of uh heart rate vari- variability as a as a as a as a metric and um you know providing insight as to uh, you know, training load and how a rider is recovering and uh, the impact of altitude and, and alcohol and sleep and all of the, the things that exist beyond um, the actual kind of riding that you're doing that could have an impact on on your performance. So, um, you know, we are clearly living in a, an age where, uh, you know, every team, almost every World Tour team is adopting the Team Sky, the Team Ineos approach and, you know, looking at the whole package from training to rider monitoring to health monitoring to aerodynamics. So, you know, I don't think this is necessarily a kind of a revolutionary tool, a revolutionary step, but I do think it's part of a wider move that everything, every box needs to be ticked in order to, to um, you know, kind of get the maximum performance out of a, a team or a rider.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And I, you know, I think I wonder with... Uh, aero testing tools, for example, I, I think there was a moment a few years ago when we thought, well, these are going to be the new parameters. You know, every everyone will have them on their bike. And I know that, for example, the GC, uh, the G, Team GB Track Team, uh, do have some bikes with ha- which have integrated aero sensors in the head tube. Um, I don't know exactly how they use those because obviously they don't tell me. But you can kind of, you can sometimes spot it in in some of the pictures that appear on Getty as I like to do <laughs> um but I think you know I it would be really unfortunately I do think it'd be one of those things that the UCI would ban if there was a, if there was an actual way I think the problem to just to digress slightly the problem with these um aerodynamic devices is they have a hard time separating out the resistance coming from uh you know rolling resistance and then the kind of resistance coming from aerodynamic drag Um, And and that's partly because kind of, you know, rolling resistance is a moving target. You know, you might keep your tyres the same, they're pumped up to the same thing, but obviously the the kind of road surface you're going on is constantly changing. And it's very difficult for the device, uh, you know, which is kind of measuring the wind speed. It's very difficult for that device to know whether your kind of, you know, uh, wind speed has increased or decreased as a result of you being, less aerodynamic on the bike or as a result of the kind of road getting rougher <laughs> or or other various things but you know if those are not insurmountable problems or there are ways that we can overcome them or there are ways that we can kind of um you know make them kind of null values in in the equations in the sense that maybe we're not getting you know discrete accurate figures but we're getting data that allows us to uh properly say you know know that you know, we're doing a b testing or we know that it you know we would kind of take we put that to a side and then the the you know what we're left with is the kind of aerodynamic drag then you know just like time trialists monitor there or you know or Chris roon stares at his stem monitoring his power output on a climb you know I don't think it's a stretch to to see to imagine that we we could see uh riders in the Tour de France staring at their stair monitoring their live aerodynamic drag you know it has just as much an influence on performance as power output so if that was available and obviously there are companies who you know obviously Notio and Body Rocket are two of them but there are there are Aero, there's Aerolab uh, which I believe is an American company and you know, I'm sure there are other people developing these types of things you now I think th- that would be an incredibly valuable tool to a Tour de France rider or any racer
0: hmm yeah, I think, yeah, and and to go back to, um, you know, speaking about F- Formula One earlier and the amount of data that's available, you know, live data from the cars in in the pits and teams being able to make, you know, live, you know, kind of technical decisions around kind of pit stops and tyre temperature and, and kind of tactics, you know, based on that data, you know, it's it's not a leap to see not a similar level of kind of data in, uh, in cycling because, as you said earlier, bikes are just inherently a lot more simple than cars. But to see more data thrown into the mix for teams to make tactical decisions, whether that's riders out on the road or the DS in the car, um, that could be based on aerodynamic sensors if those, uh, you know, if the current challenges are surmountable. Um, but also going back to the, the kind of the, the body monitoring, the health monitoring tools, you have an insight as to exactly how a rider's body is responding to the, the strain or the effort of a particular stage might enable teams to make more informed tactical decisions that then could pay off down the road. So, yeah, you know, I think all of these tools are quite early in their application and development and you know perhaps not surprising to see the initial application of aero sensors to be on the track where the rolling resistance kind of variables are, are less significant, um, but potentially a really interesting um, avenue for teams uh, to explore, but also for... For fans who do want to kind of get stuck into the to the tech and have that live data, um, you know, it could also be really interesting in terms of the, the the kind of live viewing experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, you know, as as you say, you mentioned Formula One there, and, and you know, I think it's kind of part of the interest and intrigue in that sport is kind of all of that live data that you get. You know, we obviously we get speed, we get the pedal revolutions, we also get to hear. You know, we get to hear <laughs> team radio, which I would really like to hear in cycling. You know, I think you know, obviously all of this data if 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 it had if it was available to riders in the sport, then I, I think it should be available to people watching the race as well. And, you know, it would be amazing to see, you know, we already do to a certain you know, we've we had in the Giro d'Italia earlier this year, uh, Whoop, for example, had certain riders kind of, I think live heart rates and we saw their kind of stress scores at the end of the end of the race. And, you know, I'm obviously speaking from a kind of viewpoint of you know, I love new tech and all this stuff, but I think if we had access to live rider heart rates, live rider powers, live rider aerodynamic drags, and you know all of these things, you know, it'd be really interesting to see the effect of uh, you know a bike change on live rider aerodynamics, for example, and and then you know be able to piece together well, you know, this guy's just changed his bike here, you know, a bit like a Formula One pit stop. We've seen some great cyclocross pit stops over the years. You know, would that open up tactical? options for riders to you know if they could literally see the difference between changing from their kind of climbing bike to their aero bike in in the kind of live data would that open up tactical possibilities for teams and obviously you know make for more interesting viewing
0: i, I think it potentially could mm. and you know in many respects well you know data has become you know fundamental to to cycling and and performance but then you know we are still very you you know, archaic in how data is used in cycling in terms of how it's kind of publicly presented or, or kind of publicly available uh again the the uci is a, a hurdle here but also you know rider you know, attitudes and the attitudes of teams to be able to or want to, to to share this data i think there's there's a long way to go there as well but i don't know you know we've got uh you know we've got netflix at the, at the tour de france this year you know that's that's not necessarily going to um spill too many secrets but you know perhaps there is a kind of willingness to you know create more of a narrative around cycling and you know the wider use of data and having data publicly available could could be part of that so yeah you know i think um you know we keep talking about formula 1 but you know we we've seen how popular drive to survive has been and you know cycling is effectively looking to replicate that model with the tour de france documentary so i don't know maybe this isn't as far around the corner as we would have said maybe a year ago
1: well, I certainly hope so. And that is it for our kind of future of Tour de France tech that you know we hope to see in the next few years. But of course, I'm sure there are, you know, we don't know everything, as you might have guessed. <laughs> and I'm sure there are things that we've missed. So if there are, and if it, any kind of tech trends that you are aware of, then send us a private email. Don't tell anyone else. And if, if they're good enough scoops, obviously we'll write about them on Bikeradar.com.
0: <laughs> exactly and we have a new we have a new email address actually oh yeah, got, we do we've got podcast at bike radar.com so you can send us your tips send us your feedback um you can just send us a nice email if you if you want um but yeah we're certainly keen to hear any tech scoops
1: yeah absolutely and as always you know thank you very much for listening to this podcast please don't forget to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice Uh, subscribe if you'd like to hear more podcasts like this, of course as I mentioned this is part of our Tour de France series so well worth going back and listening to the rest of our Tour de France episodes from this year if you haven't already, share it with your friends, share it with your family make your dog listen to it whilst you're out of the house, I'm sure we'll keep them soothed and comfortable and thank you George for joining me today and thank you listeners for joining us.
0: Thank you very much Simon and thanks for listening (laughs)